Britain was quite unusual in terms of women's involvement in the labour market and certainly I argue in the sex factor that that was key to sowing the seeds of the Industrial Revolution and the rise of Britain. And what's sad is that whilst women's interaction, engagement in the market economy was able to sow those seeds, as the 1800s wear on, we see women increasingly being pushed out of the labour market. Hello and welcome to Breaking Barriers. My name is Reem Ibrahim and I'm the Communications Officer and Linda Watson Scholar here at the Institute of Economic Affairs. In 1792, Mary Wollstonecraft published a vindication of the rights of women with strictures on moral and political subjects. A radical for her time, Wollstonecraft argued that women were equally as capable as men and therefore deserved the same access to education. She also noted that it wasn't only society's focus on women's biology that stopped progression towards educational equality, but also society's obsession with female purity. Even for wealthier families who had the means to educate, the fears that her virginity could be brought into question made going to school alongside men out of the question. Where respectable families were consistently placing their daughter's morality ahead of their education, Wollstonecraft stated that without knowledge, there can be no morality. She argued that true virtue could only ever be achieved by immersing yourself in life and experiencing the world. To this end, she called for a revolution in female manners. From mandatory hijab laws and virginity testing to honour killings and female genital mutilation, women are still suffering the consequences. It is vital that we challenge the idea that a woman's worth and respect entirely hangs on their bodily modesty. Challenge this belief, and you challenge the root of many of the arguments used by governments and societies alike justify policing and constraining women across the world. Now, without taking into account many of the different challenges that women face, the economic discipline is powerless to understand many of its own fundamental questions. If we wish to explain complex systems of human interaction in the marketplace, it is pertinent that we also understand why women interact in the marketplace differently to men. Ultimately, Female liberation is good for economic productivity. A society in which women are afforded bodily autonomy and the freedom to participate in the market is a society that is more likely to prosper. For this week's episode of Breaking Barriers, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Victoria Bateman. Victoria is a fellow in economics at the University of Cambridge, and she is also known for using her body in both art and protest including to challenge the assumptions and stigma surrounding women's bodies. Victoria is also the author of two fantastic books. We've got The Sex Factor and Naked Feminism. Victoria, thank you so, so much for uh, joining me today for this fantastic conversation. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I wondered if you could start by telling me a little bit about the broad history of women's liberation. Well, I think sometimes we look back on history and we like to assume that history has been one long march <laughs> towards bodily and other freedoms for women. And, you know, we're used to asking, when will sexism end? Not when did it begin, 
But the reality is actually in many early human societies, men and women were pretty equal. You know, there used to be this idea of man the hunter. You know, men were out hunting and women were sat within the hut, perhaps gossiping with one another about who was the best hunter. But you know, we know now there was such a thing as woman the hunter. So, you know, in these very early societies, women made equal contributions to their societies, to their economies. And actually, do you know, in, if we think about early Babylonia, if we think about early Egypt, if we think about early Iran, um, you know, these were societies in which women didn't have to cover their hair. They could walk out in public, mix with men, and they worked. They did things like owned taverns. They wove cloth. They cut reed. They even navigated the rivers, you know, taking people on long boat journeys down the Nile or whatever else. Um, so what went wrong? Well, in about the second millennium BC, you start to see across really the Eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East, this obsession with covering women up. And you see it in, for example, the 12th century BC Assyrian law codes, which were very serious about what clothing women should or shouldn't wear. And really written down in law from that time is this idea that if you're a respectable woman, you have to cover up and you have to cover your hair. Now, the exceptions to this were unrespectable women. So if you were a slave girl, or if you were a sex worker, a harlot, you were not allowed to cover up because you had to mark yourself out relative to the respectable women in society. And the punishment, if you, if you were found to be covering your, your head as a harlot, the punishment was harsh. You would be stripped naked in public, you would be caned 50 times, and you would have pitch poured over your head. If you were a slave girl and you weren't abiding by these clothing laws, you would have your ears cut off. So really from, you know, from that second <laughs> millennium BC, we start to see women's freedoms increasingly restricted in the Middle East, in the Mediterranean, and actually perhaps nowhere more than ancient Greece. So we think about ancient Greece as being like the pinnacle of civilization. The beacon of liberalism Absolutely. for many women. And it was if you were a man. And you know, as a man, you could be free and you could be respectable, but as a woman, you had a choice. Either you were free or you were respectable. So if you wanted to be a respectable woman, you had to seclude yourself from men in society. You definitely had to cover your hair. You couldn't go out and, and engage in paid work in public. And so you led a very restricted life. So the only women who really did go out in public and engage in paid work were the courtesans or the sex workers. And they had a degree of financial independence, but what they lacked was respectability, of course. As a result, they paid for their financial independence through this loss of respectability. So as an ancient Greek woman, you had a stark choice, freedom, or respectability, whereas for Greek men, you could be free and respectable. And you know, we see this in, in the gods. So if you look at the ancient gods, you have all of these amazing male gods, and they are you know, filled with wisdom, and they are also terribly promiscuous. Whereas if you look at the female goddesses within the ancient Greek world, as women, basically we have a choice between Athena, or the Romans would call her Venus, 
and she is a kind of the goddess of love, of promiscuity, but she's not seen as particularly clever. Um, and then we have Athena. Now she is the wise woman and she is also virginal. So as women, we have this choice between being chaste and virginal or being intelligent. And I think, I think that's particularly interesting. The, you sort of talk about the difference between the brain and the body. Yeah. So when did that kind of, yeah. this kind of idea behind sexual purity, you were either sexually pure or you were intelligent, you can't have both. Exactly. When did that sort of come about? So I think in part, it boils down to a matter of biology. Mm -hmm. And this biological fact, if <coughs> I can call it that, is paternity uncertainty. So when a woman gives birth to a baby, she knows she is the mother. But there might always be the doubt in the mind of the father as to whether he truly is the father of the baby. And this paternity uncertainty can drive men to want to closet and protect the women that they see as their own, what they would see as protecting them from being impregnated by other men. Now, where this becomes a particular problem is where you have societies, not just with private property, but with extreme inequality when it comes to private property. So where you have, for example, women that are not allowed to own property. And so within that context, women become vessels for their husband's family. Once you have private property, you have inheritance. And so the passing down of property to the next generation, as the patriarch, you would want to guarantee that that property is being passed on to children that are truly your son's children. So where you have women that are locked out of owning property, that have no financial independence, where it is males, patriarchy that dominates private ownership, and also where you have a lot of inequality between men. So if we think about, for example, some of the Middle Eastern states, the oil-rich states, where you have extreme inequality in terms of private ownership. So you have just a few wealthy families, and then lots that are kind of locked out of, locked out of that. Then what you have is essentially this competition between families for the richest husbands. Why is it that these private property rights had you know, not been afforded to women in the same way that they had been afforded to, to men? Yeah. So, I mean, sadly, it's something, it's something that we see frequently in many societies, this attempt to exclude people from involvement in mm. the market. Because, of course, by excluding other people, you're able to monopolise, you're able to keep the resources, keep the winnings to yourself. And so much harm has been done throughout history by people's exclusion from, um, from the market. And so you had really in some of these early societies in the Middle East, which at the time were, of course, the pinnacle of civilization in the world, this increasing, you know, privatization of property in a sense, but concentrated very much in the hands of men and in the hands of just a few wealthy families. And so that creates this pressure on families to create pure daughters who can be vessels through which property and inheritance can pass, and pure daughters who are tempting for men in the marriage market, who can be guaranteed to give birth to the family's next generation. So really this paternity uncertainty is at the heart of restrictions on women and the way we view women as, as being these pure vessels. But I think that's not the only issue because actually 
paternity uncertainty is something you know, that is faced across the world, you know, and yet women are treated very differently in different parts of the world. Now, some people might say that religion is similarly important, and it is certainly true that, for example, the early Christians were hell-bent on covering women up, secluding women, and so on. There was this saintly trio of St. Paul, of Augustine and Tertullian, and, you know, over time, there was this increasing emphasis on covering up women to the point that even St. Augustine thought that, you know, even within marriage should be very modest. And mm. there came to be this notion of the Augustinian marriage, which was a sex-free marriage. I mean, how, how humans were supposed to reproduce <laughs> with women bizarre. maintaining their purity both within marriage as well and as... outside of marriage. I mean, that's incredible. Well, the virginal birth, the that's virgin, what the we can all aspire. Birth. And if you're not having a virginal birth, then you have failed as a woman. Within, obviously within Islam, there, there are different strands within Islam. There is, as within Christianity, a patriarchal strand that places emphasis on covering women up, secluding them from society. And then in the Far East, you had Confucianism. Yes. Confucianism. And Confucianism which, itself also kind yeah. of, you know, had that kind of patriarchal, I guess, religious element where um, it was a sin to not be pure. Yeah, and I, I mean, it, it, it's sometimes said in, in China that there are 10,000 sins and the biggest sin of all is sexuality. And boy, were women charged <laughs> with that sin. Yeah. So even within your own household, as a woman, during the, the, the um, Neo-Confucian era, if you were sharing cutlery or a wardrobe with your husband, then that was breaking these separate spheres that you were expected to maintain between men and women. So there is an element of biology, there is an element of religion, but the thing is with religion, you know, there is such wide variety within any single religion. Within Christianity Day, you've got, say, um, a purity culture within evangelical American Christianity, but then you've got Christians for biblical equality yeah. who are real feminists when it comes to Christianity. You've got similar variety within Islam. And then you've also got, you know, non-religious people that have quite socially conservative attitudes towards women and view, for example, promiscuous women as a problem for society. I mean, I would say really there are a couple of things that have tended to intensify focus on women's bodies and have brought lesser freedoms for, for women's bodies. Periods of high population growth is one. So where you have economies that are worried about running out of resources, that are struggling to feed people, then sex is increasingly demonized and with it, women. <laughs> who they're having sex with, how much they're having mm -hmm. sex with. Promiscuous women became, become seen as the problem within society. So periods of high population growth, and then also periods of warfare, where you have intense warfare. Women who are seen as promiscuous are seen as fraternizing with the enemy. And is that a result, as a result of the, I mean, the economic arguments when, yeah. you know, in, in periods of, you know, high scarcity, that would then impact the amount that women you know, how much motherhood is valued, but also yeah. how much women are expected to reproduce. Yeah. Is, is, it, is it as a result of those economic arguments? It, no, it, it is. That's right. It is. I mean, a, a kind of Malthusian mm -hmm. perspective can be, can be brought onto this, that, yeah, in periods of high population pressure where people are struggling to feed themselves, 
there is a desire in society to try and control reproduction in an effort to prevent further upward pressure on food prices, <laughs> on energy prices and so on. I mean, what's interesting is we have, I mean, I would argue that we have increasingly a problem in modern day society with the policing of women's bodies, with promiscuous women, scantily clad women being written off by society. And this is also a time when all the time we're talking about human beings, the, the, the footprint that they have on the planet, the population pressure that the planet is, is facing. Um, uh, it is also a time of warfare returning to Europe as well, mm -hmm. sadly. And as I say, historically, periods of warfare have never been good for women's bodily freedoms. Women come to be shut away, um, come to be covered up. Promiscuous women become demonized. And of course, rape is a weapon of war, mm. sadly. And I think, you know, in some societies, this is seen as a protective response, but it also has really... Um, adverse effects on women's freedoms. And I guess the part of the reason why it is used as a weapon of war is because there is that added element of, um, you know, the, the invasion of purity. And, you know, the, the, the worst possible yeah. crime that could be committed is the removal of female purity from a particular Absolutely. cultural society. Um, do you think, so just thinking about the way that women's liberation um, has occurred or is occurring at the moment we think about the suffragettes and you know you've spoken a little bit about the the the, the sort of pre-history uh, of, of that and the way that women have been presented throughout history as a result of those economic yeah. changes um the suffragettes i mean they oh. i'm sure you have lots to say about them but they they you know when it comes to sexual purity they um they held it on, on the most high regard oh absolutely we think about the colors of the suffragettes purple white and green and what did the white represent the white represented bodily <laughs> purity yes you know there was no one more obsessed with virginity and chastity than the suffragettes and really they built their respectability within society on this foundation of, of bodily respectability mm -hmm. and hence that embedding of that bodily purity within the suffragette flag. And we also see the way in which suffragettes were expected to conduct themselves. So one of my favourite suffragettes, Elizabeth Wollstonehome Elmy, and she was regularly seen in the corridors of Parliament. She was busy lobbying for changes in the law to make things equal for men and women. So changes in property law so that women could, for example, own their own property and were entitled to their own earnings. Changes in divorce law to make things equal for women and men and so on. So she was busy in the corridors of um, Westminster. Now, she was reluctant to get married because she worried about losing rights to her property and so on. Um, but she nevertheless fell in love and she got pregnant outside of marriage. And she was under great pressure from within the suffragette movement to get married in order to remove this stain of single motherhood that faced her. And so she did, she gave in, she got married. And nevertheless, the suffragette movement felt that this was not enough to repair their reputation. And so she was sidelined. She was invited to resign from her various positions within the movement. Fawcett wrote that she had done a great injury to the women's movement wow. through her immodesty. And it's really why we don't know her name today. Elizabeth Wollstonehome Elmy, such an important figure at the time, yet we don't know her name. Now, of course, the century beforehand, Mary Wollstonecraft. 
Mary Wollstonecraft, one who of the most, sort of most cited liberal feminist, most cited liberal at the feminist. And at the time, she was also, by the end of the 1700s, she was written off as, if I'm allowed to say it, I'm allowed to say whore, perhaps so, I yes. should say harlot. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, she was written off. And in fact, um, her, her, her book, A Vindication, was said to be um, words archly framed for propagating whoredom by one um, publication at, at the time. That's incredible. And not only because she was encouraging women to go out into the world, to explore, to get educated, but she herself got pregnant outside of marriage. And um, that meant that as far as the suffragettes were concerned, you know, her work didn't deserve attention. Mm -hmm. And so it was only really in the 20th century that Mary Wollstonecraft's work has been looked at once again. Her reputation has been repaired. And perhaps in the 21st century, perhaps Elizabeth Wollstonehome Elmy is another, <laughs> another well, like, woman well, who's... Well, so. And I think, as you know, I've, I've spoken about this before, where I think that, you know, I think the work that the suffragettes did was fantastic. And obviously gaining the rights uh, for women to vote is, of course, incredibly important. But in terms of, you know, just liberating women as a whole, really it was the when women were able to own their own homes without their husband's permission yeah. or without their or, you know owning a bank account having a credit card having a credit card and but also being able to keep their own wages and it also meant that when women were widowed um which is talking in about 20 or 30 years before women were able to uh, 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 able to vote but they were then able to own their own property and also when when they were widowed they weren't required to then remarry in order to uh, to be financially secured so i think that you know it's interesting you know where the economic arguments come in yeah. really when women were given that kind of economic choice and control they then were liberated in other aspects of their yeah. lives I mean, if you look for example at the ownership of government bonds mm -hmm. and railway bonds in the late 1800s the late victorian period between about a quarter and a third were owned by women now some people are surprised by that think that's a relatively high figure and um, those bonds were mostly held in for example in trust for unmarried women or for widows, oh, as wow. you say. That's particularly interesting. But I think what um, what we actually saw in the course of the 1800s was things moving backwards for women in terms of their involvement in the labour market. So we think of this idea of the housewife being a historic thing, going back to the earliest of times, when I've said, you have woman the hunter back then, <laughs> women were out there doing things. The housewife... Certainly in British society, was a product of the Victorian age. If we were to go back, you know, centuries before that, it was normal for women to work. Women were out there in the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, in the workplace, earning their own wages. Um, and yes, they, they didn't have the best jobs. And goodness me, were there attempts by guilds and then in the early 1800s, trade unions to try and push women out of the labour market and out of skilled professions, absolutely. But actually, Britain was quite unusual in terms of women's involvement in the labour market. And certainly, I argue in the sex factor that that was key to sowing the seeds of the Industrial Revolution and the rise of Britain. And what's sad is that whilst women's interaction, engagement in the market economy was able to sow those seeds. As the 1800s wear on, we see women increasingly being pushed 
out of the labour market. The trade unions, for example, had little interest in mm. women's work. And we see whether it's spinners unions, hat makers unions, printmakers unions attempting to force on companies the idea that it is men that they should be employing and that they should be paying those men family wages such that their wives don't have to work. And so you see women increasingly pushed out of the workplace in the course of the 1800s. Um, now, alongside that, you do also see within the suffragette movement this push for women to at least by law have the ability to take charge of their own money and earn their uh, and own their own property within marriage but that is a long long um a long fight i think that's particularly interesting and of course the impact on on women as a whole as a result of that um and i do think that there is a general um, I guess, assumption that women had always been housewives, that women had always been out of the workplace. And actually, it's a 20th century phenomenon where, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I remember being, you know, being taught in school, you had um, Rosie, you know, during the Second World War with the, yes. the you know, uh, coming in and saying that actually women should now pick up the work and pick up the fight yeah. in order to, in order for, for, for their husbands to go off and fight in, in the war. Yeah. That's not necessarily true. Yeah. And of course, there is this long history of women having those kind of economic freedoms as well. Yeah. Um, could you tell me a bit about the impact that that's had in the 20th and even the 21st century? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the way I like to look at history, I mean, I talked at the beginning about this one long march towards freedom. <laughs> I say Which it is, is not, not like true. That. Basically, history is a series of cycles. I mean, we think of the business cycle, yes. the economy going boom and bust up and down. Well, basically, that's how it's been with women's freedom. I would say relative to many other parts of the world, women have had it pretty good in um, in particularly northwestern Europe, actually. I mean, somewhere like um, the Netherlands and Britain, going all the way back to medieval times, and possibly even before then, it's just we have fewer records, records of what's, and what actually archival resources to, you know, to, to refer back to. But certainly, for example, when you look at church records, we know that women in Britain in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, typically did not get married until they were 25 or 26. And actually a good chunk of them, about 15% of them never got married. Oh, wow. They supported themselves independently. Whereas if you look at other parts of the world that at the time were perhaps seen as more economically successful, China, the Middle East, India and Pakistan, what you see there are high rates of what today we would call child marriage. And actually, you know, sadly, in some parts of the world, that remains a problem today. In Western Central Africa, up to 40% of young women were married by the time they were 18. In some parts of South Asia, it's a problem as well. So it's really quite remarkable that going back hundreds of years, women had this ability to take charge of whether, when and who to marry. And the result was a remarkably modern age of marriage when you think about it and what was at the roots of that it was their ability to go out into the marketplace to work to earn their financial independence and that meant that they weren't under the thumb of a patriarch who was trying to marry them off from a young age who was seeing them purely as a vessel for the continuation of a male family line they could live their own lives now of course as a side effect of this, because 
people tended not to get married until their mid to late 20s. Motherhood. You, you <laughs> well, you, you did have people getting pregnant outside of marriage and you did have sex work. Because, well. of course, in a society where people are getting married young, they have access to sex through marriage from a younger age. In a society where people are getting married later, then you tend to find in those kinds of societies more of a sex work industry. And also you will find more pregnancies outside of marriage. But actually, again, when we look at how those things were dealt with in the context of somewhere like Britain, and again, it's very up and down, so I, I, I'm, I'm stereotyping here, but actually sex work was pretty tolerated. And, you know, even the church owned brothels. In fact, the church owned one of the most famous brothels of the medieval period in Southwark in oh London oh, and made money. And what they would regulate was that just on special religious days, the sex workers had to leave London <laughs> and just stay away oh my whilst the clerical happenings happened. Um, and then when it came to pregnancies outside of marriage, you know, in some parts of the world, women would literally be locked up for that. Mm. Whereas there was a more pragmatic response and that included actually the authorities would try to hold responsible the fathers involved. Okay. And so men were expected to take responsibility if a woman got pregnant outside of marriage. And I guess it's taking responsibility for, you know, those particular consequences as yes, well. Helping to look after the, the, the resultant child. And so rather than women being flogged or locked up in a mm. Magdalene home or something like that, there was quite a pragmatic economic financial response. So, so long as we can make sure this child is provided for, and even if the father doesn't go on to marry the mother, though that certainly would be encouraged, if the father nevertheless made a financial contribution, then that would be, you know, you that could get away acceptable. with that. That's, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's particularly interesting in the way that you've described, as you say, sort of the Hayekian business cycle yeah. of women's freedom. Of women's freedoms. And the way that that's shifted and changed, but also the way that, it's it's interacted with the economic state at, at that particular yeah. time and also the fact that this, these kind of economic um, freedoms being afforded to women has that impacted the economy as a whole um you talk in your book about um the cult of female purity yes. and the way that that has impacted not only i mean you know sort of the economic arguments and why women you know the way that women were able to engage in the marketplace and the way they interact in the marketplace but also how that has impacted women as a whole could you tell me a little bit about that yes yeah, so the cult of female modesty i mean let's just for a moment let's come up with a long list of so many restrictions on women's freedom <laughs> across the world. I'm going to start with child marriage, compulsory hijab, female genital mutilation, guardianship laws, honour killings, virginity testing, girls being excluded from school in Afghanistan, women being restricted in terms of their engagement with the workforce in South Asia, where, for example, in India, women's labour force participation rate is only about 20%. Oh, wow. So if we think about all of these restrictions, obstacles, limitations on women's lives across the world, and we look for the underlying source, what I claim in my book, Naked Feminism, 
is it is the cult of female modesty behind all of this. And so this is the idea that women are judged on the basis of their bodily modesty. So whether they are, whether their bodies have been seen or touched. And essentially it is the way as a society we divide women up into two camps, the good girls and the harlots. <laughs> and you're judged. And if you cross a line between those two camps, you are ostracized, you are punished, you are seen as unworthy, purely on the basis that, for example, your virginity has been brought into question. So no matter what else you do with your life, no matter how much you achieve, no matter how good a person you are, purely on the basis of whether your body has been seen or touched, you can be written off. So these harlots of society come to be seen as a dual threat. First of all, a threat to themselves, and secondly, a threat to wider society, and that includes other women, for example, by posing a bad example for other women, <laughs> by causing men to see other women as sex objects, uh, as some feminists claim, um, or um, by hurting men by provoking, by distracting. Those poor men those that poor have men to see or to... touch your body. I exactly. mean, those poor men, that's all we need to care about. And, do you know, the result is that throughout history, immodest women, so women deemed promiscuous, the harlots of society have been held responsible for everything from, you know, earthquakes to wars <laughs> to economic ruin. I mean, there are even some in, for example, American society today, some social conservatives who would claim that the decline of America as a, is a result of increased harlotry within American <laughs> oh society. Sexual impurity Sexual resulted impurity. in the Great Depression. It's all these single mothers, you know, messing yes. things up. I mean, some people seriously think this, that, you know, social breakdown, family breakdown is at the root of this economic rot and the result is that the West is on decline and that if only girls could, you know, cover themselves up have more respect for themselves, then we could have, you know, a better society and with it present better foundations and for the where, economy. And, I mean, where do those arguments really come from? Because at the crux yeah. of it, and we see this today with a lot of those kind of social yeah. conservatives that then become somewhat nostalgic for a world in which the patriarchy was much more stringent, mm -hmm. but also, I mean, nostalgic in terms of the past, but also looking across the world where women are more respected. I look at those world, look at yeah. those countries where women are. Uh, less sexually promiscuous, we should be striving towards those I kind think, of cultures. I think, first of all, there are a lot of rose-tinted spectacles when it comes to life in the past yes. and life in other countries. And secondly, it's lack of confronting the evidence. Yes. So one of the things I do in Naked Feminism is to look at countries, societies across the world and to ask, you know, are women better educated, safer, um, in countries where there is more of a focus on covering women up, on um, guarding women's purity. And what I find is actually, no, women are not more respected. They are not safer in countries where there is more of this emphasis on their bodily modesty. So you look, for example, at street harassment in places like Egypt, Morocco and Pakistan, um, where... Um, you know, 60% or more of women have recently experienced street harassment. Actually, in Egypt, Morocco and Lebanon, between a third and two thirds of men openly admit to harassing women on the street. The majority of them argue it is women's own fault. Women are inviting this harassment through the Very way they dress. 
through their immodesty. And I think, I mean, that's particularly interesting, of course, I, I mean, I spoke to you earlier about my own experiences. I'm half Egyptian, half Moroccan, right. so the cultural uh, sort of implications that that has, but this emphasis on, I mean, this is somewhat irrational emphasis on the physical female modesty and the, the, the way in which the female body is incredibly shocking, but also that if a woman is to be seen or to be touched, that they are somehow valued as less. Yes. Why, why is that the case? So they're seen, and, and this hence is how it perpetuates this unsafe environment, because if you write off the harlots of society, if you see them as dirt, mm -hmm. if you see them as rubbish, then that propagates mistreatment. Because you know, as human beings, typically if we are nasty to someone, you would have a feeling of guilt, you know? But if there are people that have been singled out, that have been written off, that you're told are worthless, then you can see how you end up in a situation where those people are mistreated. And when those people you know, might otherwise come forward and ask for that mistreatment to stop, they can't because they are not listened to. And so this is happening, say, nowadays with sex workers in Western society, sex workers who are, in a sense, at the top of this mountain of immodesty that are written off by our societies as being, you know, brainwashed, as being maidens of patriarchy. And as a result, they don't have their voices listened to. So when they are out, you know, in Parliament Square demanding the same rights and freedoms as everyone else within the economy, their voices go unheard. They're mistreated by our institutions, by the police force and so on, because they are viewed as, sadly, as lesser women, purely because their bodies have been seen or touched. And I think what's really sad is that as feminists, more than anyone, we need to be listening to these women and taking them seriously. And sadly, we're not. There is um, something George Orwell, I'm quite a fan of George Orwell. And in 1984, one of the themes of 1984 is how you can't always trust the liberals to be the future of freedom. Sometimes it is the people who are written off by society as being the common people. It is in them that the future lies. And actually, I do think when it comes to understanding liberty and freedom, it is the women whose society writes off, you know, the immodest women that understand more than any of us the importance of bodily freedom, the importance of individual liberty. And, you know, they are the cleverest of all. And yet, we don't listen to them. Off, and they're written off. I mean, it's particularly interesting with regard to the way that women who are written off as, as you said, yeah. harlots, are therefore deemed as less worthy. I was yeah. thinking, I was um, reading a bit recently about the Jack the Ripper murders. Yes. And, um, you know, successive line of women who were murdered in very, very similar ways. But of course, because, I mean, this is partly as a result of the failure of the police and the Metropolitan yeah. Police, but also, the, the reason why they were sort of written off is because the majority of them, or we suspect all of them, were, yeah. um, uh, were, 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 were harlots, were prostitutes, and they're sex workers. And that kind of, um, you know, devaluing of women itself, I think, has only, I mean, has it shifted? Has it changed? So I think this, you know, obviously we had the sexual revolution yes. in the West. And, you know, from that point on, we've got used to this idea that actually we can do what we want with our own body. We yes. can access the pill. We can go out and be raunchy. We can have, <laughs> you know, multiple boyfriends across our lifetime mm. and so on. 
But actually, I do think, and perhaps it is in response to raunch culture, you are seeing this modern-day Puritanism on the rise. So you're seeing it in the purity culture of evangelical Christianity within the US. You're seeing it in this um, resistance to sex worker rights and freedoms. And, you know, sex workers in 1975, sex workers in France barricaded themselves in a church wanted to be listened to, wanted a meeting with the women's ministry. And the women's ministry said, no, we're not listening to you. Um, 1985 was the first World Whores Congress where sex workers across the world get together and demand that what Mary Wollstonecraft had to say should apply as much to them as to any other mm. woman. Um, and they demanded to be treated with the same, you know, dignity and to be given the same rights as other women in society. But instead, what we're seeing is, if anything, a rolling back of sex worker rights. We're seeing the Nordic model spread across Europe, which is, for example, increasingly criminalizing mm -hmm. those who buy sex. And feminists will say, well, this isn't criminalizing the sex worker. But hey, if someone criminalised people attending my lectures, I think that would have an effect on, yes. my, on my financial independence. Absolutely. So we see that. We see, obviously, when it comes to birth control and abortion within the US right now, we're seeing that being rolled back. Within Israel, I'm afraid to say, we're seeing an increasing within extremist parts of society. We're sadly seeing an increasing emphasis on gender segregation. Mm -hmm. In Afghanistan, we have the return of the Taliban. We have girls en masse being pulled out of school and women out of the mm -hmm. workplace. And we're seeing this you know, since 1979 in Iran, women being forced to cover their, cover their hair. And the, the fight that is going on right now, oh, simply absolutely. to be able to uncover your hair. So I think across the world, there is a return to Puritanism. Um, you always have to be on guard. As I say, women's freedoms up and down yes. across time. And typically, it, it ebbs and flows between periods of sexual um, liberalism and periods of puritanism. Mm -hmm. And so we saw the sexual revolution. We saw these kind of, um, I guess, if effectively what we're talking about with individual liberty and this sort yeah. of broader classical liberal movement. For yeah. women in particular, this meant bodily autonomy. That yeah. meant access to contraception. That yes. meant effectively, again, control over one's own reproductive yeah. rights. And then now we're seeing this return to puritanism. Of course, there are various different strands within that kind of feminist yeah. movement. Um, but we are seeing that kind of authoritarianism on the rise. Now, many feminists, especially the feminists that dominate today's uh, strands of feminism, would then argue that a sort of Marxist feminist lens would argue that um, a socialist economy is the true, uh, true beacon for, for, for women's liberty. Why is that not the case? Uh. So, I, I mean, I, I would say that as a feminist, I really do appreciate the writings and the work that happens right across the political mm -hmm. spectrum, from Marxist feminism all the way through to libertarian um, feminism. And certainly within Marxist writing, there is an understanding that when it comes to men and women and their engagement in the marketplace, there is something that, that means that women, or um, people born female, can be at a dis disadvantage, and mm -hmm. that is the womb. Because if you, if you have a womb, you can be left in a situation where you have other people to feed, 
And there are two possibilities, that two outcomes from that. One is precarity, where you are working damned hard to be able to not just feed yourself, but feed Those a child, whilst having less ability to work hard because you've got the caring labor to do. So that's one possibility, precarity, um, or dependency on men. You know, dependency, financial dependency on a husband. Now, what socialist or Marxist feminist would say in response to this, you know, biological difference, <laughs> the womb, is, well, let us um, nationalise all resources in the economy. Let us make sure that everyone gets what they need to survive. And so, you know, the mother doesn't have to feel that she has to provide for her children. Society, society will do provide. so. Now, that... It sounds very nice on the face of it. <laughs> I would say, though, that I have two real worries. One is whether that kind of socialist society can actually provide a reasonable enough standard of living for your children. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the reality of life is when you're out there hard at work and you're saving for your future, you know, you're doing that for your children. And that is a big incentive, a big drive to and do that's that. A biological a kind biological of incentive. impulse, yes. really, isn't it? To to want to work hard and provide for your children, within a um, within more of a communist style society, you're not working hard for your own children. You're working hard for, for wider society, children. for other people's yes. children, <laughs> not your own. Now. But of course, I, the concept of even private property, but anybody else versus your own is, is entirely abolished and yeah. you're working for society you're as a whole. You're working for society as a whole. So you, in a sense, you, don't, you can't provide for your own children. Even the home that you live in is provided for you by everyone else through, you know, through this, this commune, yes. through this collective. So in a sense, you, you're deprived of the ability to provide for your own children. Instead, you're communally providing. And I think as an, as an economist, I struggle with how the incentives work in that type of economy, mm -hmm. how people are going to be incentivized to work hard in a situation in which they're doing it out of altruism for wider society mm -hmm. rather than for their own family. So I kind of worry that if we were to transition to that kind of society, in theory, women's children will be looked after, but whether we will have, you know, a hard-working society that is productive, where we have the resources to make sure people are fed and clothed and so on, I, I would worry mm -hmm. about where that would end up. And then the second thing that I worry about, perhaps even more so than that first one, actually, is whether in a truly communal society, whether women's wombs are their own. And we know that within a communal or socialist system, the social good trumps everything, your individual self-interest. Mm -hmm. And so whether or not you want children comes second to what society thinks in terms of whether or not you should have children. And, you know, women's wombs are the origins of the world. They are also the making of the future. If you want to control the future of a society, then naturally you want to control reproduction, you want to control women's rights. And thus, as a result, control women. So do you think yeah. that's why 
we, whenever we see a shifting, you know, a shift towards authoritarianism in any country, yeah. you, you brought up the example of, of China and the one-child policy. Yeah. But any time you see a increasing uh, increase of authoritarianism, one of the first things that's taken away is women's education, but also women's productive rights. Absolutely. I mean, women are very special creatures. <laughs> I mean, this, the womb is a magical thing, isn't it? And actually, in early human societies where there weren't many people where there wasn't population pressure, where there were plenty of resources. You know, women were really highly revered because of that, that, that magic that is yes. the ability to give birth. It is a wondrous thing. But in part, because it is so special, people want to control it. Um, no more so than authoritarian mm -hmm. states. But I tell you what's interesting, actually. I was doing a bit of research recently, and I wanted to look at democratic states. And I looked at the top 20 democracies and I wanted to see the extent to which they really were upholding women's bodily freedoms. I looked at three potentially controversial things. I looked at whether women could, were allowed to sunbathe topless, whether women were allowed to do the opposite and cover their hair, and whether sex workers had rights. So whether women were allowed to decide for themselves who they had sex with and on what terms, mm -hmm. for free or for money. Those three things. Out of the 20 most democratic countries in the world, only two, only two, uphold women's bodily freedom in all three senses. Oh, wow. Um, which, which two countries were they? New Zealand. Okay. And <laughs> Uruguay. No. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, so, so clearly, I mean, clearly just based off of that kind of, yeah. I mean, that's particularly interesting, three different aspects of where women are able to uh, effectively make their take own control, decisions yeah, about their bodies. And, and take control yeah. of their own body. I mean, it really does come, come down to individual liberty. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of, like, those kind of uh, effectively regulations on what, on yeah. what a woman, woman's so body is even in a democratic society, mm. it is quite difficult for women to have these basic freedoms. Well, you well know. done New Zealand and Uruguay, that's <laughs> yeah. all I can say. <laughs> we need to look a bit more into Uruguay. Yes, clearly. Why, why they you know, they seem to have... Um, and how long it will last. And how, and how long it will last. We've seen, we've seen that yeah. those cycles come about. Um, so, Victoria, just to sort of conclude, I want to talk a little bit about you <laughs> and uh, you know you have um, caused quite the stir with your own sort of um, methods of protest uh, so to speak yes. and um, I think it's incredible the kind of conversations that have resulted yeah. from that those kind of protests you. can you tell me a bit about the decision making behind that and also yeah. what the kind of um, consequences were yeah. for those kind of conversations so I should say I mean I was brought up in a pretty average family working class family in Oldham in the mm. north of England my parents had split up by the time I was 14 so I was then brought up by a single mum two younger sisters so we were a very female household had very matriarchal figures in yes. terms of my grandmothers <laughs> and so on I mean a, pr a pretty normal northern upbringing and you know I, I've always been an ambitious girl and you know that experience of poverty particularly actually after my parents separated really drove me to work hard at school. Mm -hmm. And I felt that by working hard at school, by getting a good education, I could then go on to get a good job and become financially independent and hopefully, you know, escape poverty. And what I found was, you know, as a woman, it's not enough to get your head down at school. 
and to do well at school, but you also need to acquire respectability. Mm -hmm. And so the more I achieved academically, um, so I went to my local state school, I then went to my local state sixth form college, Oldham sixth form college, I then went to Cambridge University, I then went to Oxford University, and then by the age of 30, I had a, you know, an academic job back at the University of Cambridge. The more I achieved academically, the more I felt I had to lose in terms of people judging me on the basis of my body. You know, I felt I had to choose between being a body and a brain. Mm -hmm. So if I was going to academic conferences, you felt you had to be a little bit careful in terms of how you dressed. And I think, you know, a lot of academic women spend a lot of time choosing Thinking the clothes about, that yeah, they wear for, the way for they conferences, yeah. Yeah, for example. Um, so I felt, I think, throughout my 20s, this increasing pressure to be respectable in terms of how I presented myself in order to be respected for what I was doing with mm -hmm. my brain. And by the age of 30, I'd, I'd had enough. And so what I wanted to do was take my own body and subvert this choice that women are expected to make between body and brain. So the very first thing I did, which was in 2014, was to work with an artist to model for a naked portrait that went up in the Mal Galleries in London. And it is a very confident pose, looking out at the viewer, not attempting to cover myself. Um, me in my natural state, looking out onto the world and saying to young women, we are all brains and bodies, we don't have to choose and that we should not have to pass a modesty test in order to be heard, in order to be listened to within society. And so it went really on, on, on from there. And I think really some of the reactions that I started to get to my er the early times that I began to use my body made me even more determined. Mm -hmm. And probably the, the, the reaction that most shocked me was within the feminist movement itself. Because, you know, I'm a woman who, it would be difficult to question whether I was, you know, whether I knew my own mind. You know, clearly I was doing this freely. And, yet and clearly I saw... intelligent and not doing yeah. it as a result of as social being a major, pressure. Being made in or... a patriarchy yes. or something like that. And yet, still nevertheless, I found the way in which female colleagues, feminist friends, would question what I was doing, question whether I was in my right mind, and also would tell me that what I was doing was hurting other women, hurting other feminists, and hurting other academic women. That what I was doing by showing my body was disrespecting women more generally, causing men to see all women as sex objects, mm -hmm. and that I should cover myself up. And I, I actually had a very long debate with a um, much more esteemed woman in the economics profession than I am, a very senior woman in the economics profession, following my naked protest at the Royal Economic Society. And I said to her, look, there are so many obstacles to women's bodily freedom today. The fight for women to be able to, you know, continue to access abortion and birth control, compulsory hijab, you know, female genital mutilation, so many of these things that we as economists need to be taking more seriously when it comes to thinking about poverty and inequality and the way our economies work. 
So we need to be putting women's bodies on the table. We need to be talking about them. And she said to me, Victoria, for my whole life, I've been trying to take women's bodies <laughs> off the table and you're putting them back on. Mm -hmm. And I don't appreciate that. So I think, you know, there are a lot of economists who like to think about the world by assuming away the biological the differences biology. between men and women. That is right. Acting as if We're these things the like, yeah, as mm. if compulsory hijab, FGM, um, abortion, honour killings, child marriage, as if, you know, modelling a world in which those things are just not going to be a problem because you assume away that, that biological mm -hmm. difference. So I think the more I got this kind of reaction, the more I felt that I had something to say. Um, and the more I faced up to this illiberalism, really, within modern-day feminism, and the way that feminists have internalized this cult of female modesty, the fact that women are looking down on other women purely because of the degree to which their bodies have been seen or touched. And to me, that's superficial. We shouldn't have to pass a modesty test in order to be heard, in order to, to, to be listened to. And it's precisely because we are expected to pass a modesty test that we find, for example, sex workers being denied rights and freedoms, that we find throughout history single mothers being locked up or flogged or whatever else. You know, it is women on the margins of society who most suffer from this illiberalism, from this focus on women's modesty. But also, if you look at, for example, Afghanistan, if you look at Iran, it's not actually just the immodest women that suffer. It it's is all, all women. women. Yeah. It is all women. Where that takes us, that cult of female modesty, is on the road to Iran. It is into a society where you have gender segregation in schooling or in the workplace. Where, where women are required to have their husband's permission to leave their own household, where women are yeah. unable to enter education, un unable, unable to Unable to access birth control without Absolutely. their husband's permission. And unable to ultimately, you know, go out on the street and not have to cover their hair. And I think that's, I mean, it's, Iran is a particularly sad, um, sad state of affairs. And I, 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 I respect the women that have oh. put their lives yeah. on the line to, to, you know, protest and also to, 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 to try and sign up for liberty across yes. the world for those particular women as well. Um, and I think what's interesting about your protest is that it completely opened up a conversation, mm -hmm. a conversation which, you know, I think you know, the majority of intelligent women who maybe do also identify as feminists themselves mm -hmm. would, would, you know, potentially say that they, they've sort of liberated themselves from the patriarchy. Yeah. They no longer feel those kind of, um, that, that kind of pressure, the cult of, 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 of female modesty. And yet that wasn't the case. And you yeah. reveal that that wasn't the case. Yeah. And actually in the conclusion of my book, which, and really I wrote this book to, you know, inspired both by my academic research, mm -hmm. but also by that personal experience of putting my own body out there and seeing the response to it, being a mirror in a sense for this cult of female modesty. And what I conclude in the book is that if we are to go forward from here, we need to take three steps. And the first step is to look inside ourselves, to root out this cult of female modesty. And boy, does it take a long time. And, you know, even when I felt that I was free from this cult of female modesty, it still took me some years further. So when, when that naked portrait of me first went on display, there were a couple of newspapers that responded to it by saying, oh, she's no better than a page three girl. This is, you know, <laughs> this is just page three. 
And you know, my initial reaction to that was to try and distance myself from page three, to try and say, well, oh, this I'm is a cultural like thing. Yes, yes. Yeah. this is a cultural thing. My day job is a normal job. And, and, you know, I'm respectable, basically, to try and separate myself from page three. And that is the only thing I regret about using my body because I've come a long way since then. And now I look up to and admire, admire the page women girls, that yes. perhaps I'd spent years distancing myself from. So it can take a long time to escape this cult of female modesty, but that's where we need to begin with ourselves, looking inside ourselves. And then secondly, we need to root it out from within the movement. And as I said, even going back to that suffragette flag, those colors, and the green, the purple, and the white, that purity strand within feminism needs to be rooted out. And it is there more than anywhere else, I would say, within radical feminism today, with this drive to abolish sex workers off the face of the earth, to abolish pornography off the face of the earth, this real kind of anti-sex, anti-sex work drive within radical feminism. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing, what do we replace the cult of female modesty with within the feminist movement? We replace it with something very simple, but very powerful. My body, my choice. <laughs> and, you know, typically we think of this in regards to abortion. Mm -hmm. Get your rosaries off my ovaries, please. Yes. <laughs> you know, we, we, we think about it in regard to abortion. But actually we need to broaden that concept and we need to apply it to all things related to the body and to all women. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of the My Body, My Choice movement has been monopolized by a bunch of feminists who see themselves as the clever women of society, who Mo look most down of whom on are leftists as well. That might include, yeah, that might include, and that certainly are some uh, prominent female Labour politicians who are pushing to abolish sex workers off the face of the earth. I should say there are some social conservatives too, who also have who are, that perspective. Who are in bed yes. with them when it yes. comes to that perspective. Um, so the, the, the liberal sort of um, coalition marriage between feminism social and social conservatism <laughs> yes. that, that is quite not one, but nevertheless is there. So, you know, there is this, I think, this intellectually elitist strand within feminism that itself divides women up into bodies and brains. And they see themselves as the clever women who can pontificate on what other women should be doing with their lives. And that if only you give those clever women the power through the state to make regulations and to make controls, they will through deciding what people can and can't do with their own bodies and engineer a utopian society. Now, it, we're, not, we're not gonna get there. You don't, you don't achieve freedom by depriving yourself of freedom, by restricting what women can do with their own bodies, with their own lives. That is not, to me, the route to freedom. But nevertheless, there is this liberalism within um, feminism, and that needs to be rooted out. It is intellectually elitist, it is hypocritical, and it is unfair. And ultimately, you know, if women should be free to reveal and monetize their brains, why shouldn't they be free to reveal and monetize their bodies? Why can't we all be seen fully as body and brain combined? You know, when you sit at your laptop, 
writing your academic papers or your press articles, you're using your body, you're using your fingers, your, your brain is literally a part of mm -hmm. your body. And yet there is this attempt to divide women up and to look down on those that are seen like sex workers as just, as just bodies. Talk to sex workers, there's a great deal of mental energy that goes into their work as well as, as well as the physical, you know, we are all bodies and brains. And, you know, feminism, I think if we can put my body, my choice at the centre of the movement, we can achieve a lot. And if I come back to these, you know, this long list of obstacles that women face, compulsory hijab, you know, child marriage, female genital mutilation, um, uh, honour killings, guardianship laws, virginity tests, the withdrawal of women and girls from school and the workplace, you know, all of those problems we could solve overnight if we ditched the cult of female modesty, if we came to understand that a woman's worth and respect didn't depend on something as superficial as who had seen or touched her body, but instead on much, much more important things. Mm -hmm. And do you imagine how much more joyous <laughs> and how much more rich the world would be if women were allowed to go out there and weren't subjected to these numerous restrictions on their lives and freedoms. Victoria, thank you so, so much for joining me here today. I cannot pleasure. tell you how wonderful I, I found that conversation. And I mean, the, the, these particular ideas are so interesting, but at the heart of it really is about, um, you know, in order for us to advance society as a whole, individual liberty must be upheld, bodily autonomy must be upheld. And ultimately, uh, in terms of the feminist movement, and that kind of uh, looking at society through that lens, you know, individual liberty should be at the core of it. And I think Absolutely. that you've outlined that perfectly. Thank you so much, it's Victoria. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And thank you to all of you for watching this episode of Breaking Barriers. Thank you to Victoria Bateman for joining me. If you like this kind of content and would like to see more from the Institute for Economic Affairs, hit the subscribe button and you can watch more. Thank you.